adventurers assemble, for we scrape the very depths of darkness this night. Our final boss, the wretched beast we aim to slay, none other than depression itself, probably physically manifested in the form of a giant floating eyeball of some kind. Barbarians, ready your blades. Cleric, prepare your blue wards and most powerful self-loathing poultices. Sorcerer, pack thy bag of holding with whatever road snack helps thee cope. Wizard, you are very similar to a sorcerer. I was honestly never very clear on the distinction. And Bard, last and least, play us Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. I feel a cry coming on. Welcome to Tales from the Pit, where our goal is to make light of the darkness, mock your sadness away, gently brush aside your tears with the velvet hand of destigmatization, not to be confused with the very different hand of stigmata, and just generally help each other get through this thing, whatever it is. I'm your host, Michael Swaim, and I've struggled with depression and related issues since I was nine years old, so... Here's that tale. First of all, there is a reason depression rhymes with secession. Falling into a depression can feel very much like leaving yourself behind, detaching, fighting for the unreasoned right to enslave parts of yourself, to harm your own fundamental constitution. Actually, I'm sure depression rhymes with secession because of some Latin root-related nonsense, but my thing was more poetic. When I was nine, I didn't understand any of this yet. All I knew was I had been in a car accident, doctors had said I had brain damage, and now I was very, very sad. Speaking of the car accident, some detail. When we got T-boned on Thanksgiving Day, no less, and my brother got his scars and I got my mind scars, which makes depression sound much cooler than it is. The song playing on the stereo was Powerhouse by Raymond Scott. If you're unfamiliar, it's the one from Looney Tunes that goes My only point being, I got smacked in the head by a truck while listening to one of the wackiest songs ever composed, and now I'm a professional comedian. Origin story much? True fact, friends who knew me both before and after the accident have told me that I got a lot more talkative and funnier once I became depressed. Not worth it, but that is some Phineas Gage shit right there. My brother and I were released from the hospital on my mom's birthday. She said it was the best birthday present she'd ever gotten because she rules. David thought the scars were cool, which they objectively are, and he's always seemed to have our dad's indestructible stability when it comes to the mental plane. I've seen him angry, I've seen him heartbroken, but I don't know that I've ever seen him wrestle with that hairy, nine-legged demon-with-your-own-face that I call roommate. Then again, he's quiet. David, I love you, and I hope you're doing as well as you seem to be. Congrats on the new baby. But back to me, and when I was nine. When I was nine, I was sick a lot, too. I got to miss school, which was great, and I had a doctor's note to get out of PE, which, as we said at the time, was sick and tight. But now I'm fat and dumb, so who knows? It's kind of a wash. Downsides included vertigo, vomiting, occasional panic attacks, and, worst of all, depression. I liked to draw, so I ripped up all the drawings I'd ever done. I thought I was smart, so I started hitting myself in the head. When I was nine, I'd do it with my hands. When I was 17, I'd do it with my fists, my knuckles, try to leave a mark. The most recent time I hit myself in the head, I used my metal weed grinder, which seemed fitting at the time because I smoke too much weed, and obviously that makes me a worthless piece of shit. Or so I think when I'm depressed when I'm seceded from myself. 
And it took me a long, long time to realize that a lot of people struggle with issues like that, and even longer to realize that those issues make you feel alone and embarrassed, so we often are too hesitant to discuss them. So I'm not just trying to bum you out, although that's a big part of it. I think a good motto for our show would be one Vonnegut coined. I feel and think much as you do, care about many of the things you care about, although most people do not care about them. You are not alone. And oh no, here comes an orc! Slay the orc quickly! Slay the sadness! Okay, admittedly the Dungeons and Dragons motif could have been fleshed out more, but let's get to the juicy shit. In the NASCAR race of my life, here are some of the most spectacular, crowd-pleasing crashes. I'm 10 years old, standing in the outdoor common area of our apartment complex. I'm completely still, as if freeze-tagged. My mom's been looking for me, worried. She finally finds me, asks what the heck I'm doing, reasonably so. Heart pounding, palms clammy. I try to move my lips as little as possible as I tell her, I can't move. If I move, I will die. God told me I'm not allowed to move. I think a year or two after that was the first time I tried Ativan. Then I'm 14, literally looking at myself in the mirror, tears streaming down my face like some kind of anti-Jim Carrey, telling myself, you are worthless. This is all your fault. You are dragging everyone around you down with your shittiness, and if you fuck up again, I will fucking kill you. Do you understand? I will take you out, you worthless so-and-so, etc. At the time, this all seemed very, very serious. If I saw it in a movie, I'd probably find it kind of funny, which is okay. As George Bernard Shaw said, life does not cease being tragic when something is funny, nor does it vice versa. I, I don't think that's exactly what he said, but his was more poetic. After the yelling in the mirror episode, I took some pictures of my crying, reddened face, both to remind myself later of my vow to destroy myself should I ever fuck up again, and because, let's be honest, when you're depressed, there's often a need to fetishize or commemorate it, as if the pain, the magnitude of the pain, makes it important or real, even though it's just bad chemicals. Prozac helped me a lot. Still does. Meeting my soulmate, Jennifer Moore, helped me a lot. Still does. Well, Butrin gave me recurring nightmares where Slender Man scraped the musculature off my face and then fashioned it into a red corpuscle-shaped balloon that drifted away into an orange lesioned sky. I stopped taking Wellbutrin. Flash forward. Some random items. Getting in an argument with Jen on the street, starting to compulsively bash my head against the nearest wall while strangers struggle not to make direct eye contact. Writing suicide notes, then burning them. Taking acid for the first time, knowing that I have a genetic predisposition towards schizophrenia that can be triggered by hallucinogens. But then I looked at a really important rock and forgot what I was so worried about, and also that I was a separate being from every other atom comprising the universe. This is not an official endorsement. Feeling alone, feeling hollow, feeling nothing for long periods of time. Then, finally, in my case, picking up a bottle of Jameson at age 26, finding drinking a lot of it didn't seem to make me all that hungover, and never looking back. I will say this for being drunk. Being drunk often feels like you're feeling something, and when it doesn't, it's easier to fall asleep. This is not an official endorsement. A lot more on that, substance abuse, in future episodes, but for now, just to give you an overview, or an underview, I guess, here are some true anecdotes about my alcoholism in the classic Jeff Foxworthy format I know you all love. You know you're an alcoholic when your local bartender says, see you tomorrow on your way out. You know you're an alcoholic when you're too embarrassed to go back to that bar, so you start going to a liquor store and buying bottles instead. But eventually the guy at the liquor store one time asks, hey, do you want to stay for a while and 
have some coffee and talk about things? And you say no. And he says, well, (laughs) don't drink it all in one place. You know you're an alcoholic when you're throwing up in the sink thinking, I bet if I throw up enough of this bile, I can probably get away with a few more shots before my girlfriend gets home without throwing up again. You know you're an alcoholic when you quit the best job you ever had because you need to change the cues and stimuli in your life or you're going to kill yourself. And priorities. You know you're an alcoholic when you write, perform, and edit a podcast about depression and alcoholism, mostly because you think if you take all of your secrets and sort of invert the paradigm and make them publics, maybe, maybe, that'll give you enough strength not to slip up again. But no, 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 I take that back. I do this for you guys, of course. I mean, depressed people never do anything attention-seeking or self-serving to soothe their own anguish or prove that people around them will love them enough to come to their rescue. (laughs) And this podcast is certainly not that. So to prove it, Let's move into the interview portion of our show, featuring someone with whom I share 50% of my genetic material. See? I'm not self-centered. I'm gene-centered. Perpetuate the swame line. That's what I'm about. One brief note. Unfortunately, I ran out of time uh, with this episode, and rather than get it to you guys late and fall behind in our very first week of existence... I uh, allowed a technical error to persist, so the audio in the interview is less than ideal. It's not awful by any stretch. I've done as much repair work as I could, um, but I just wanted to assure people that, yes, those occasional clicks you hear exist, and of course, we are striving to get to the bottom of the issue in a timely fashion, so episode two will not feature clicks, so enjoy them while they last. Please stifle your sobs and put your Kleenexes together for my mom. Mom. Hi, Mom. Is this good? It seems good. You should talk a little louder. I'll turn you up a bit. Okay. But I can always bump you in post. Okay. Okay. I'll try to talk louder. So you're nervous (laughs) to talk to your son? I'm not nervous to talk to my son. I'm nervous to be recorded talking to my son. Well, I'm not even recording it. This is just a test run. I don't believe you. You know how I get down. Um, (laughs) It's your job to make me not nervous. Oh, well, I brought weed, but you didn't smoke any. Oh, well, I didn't want to (laughs) cough during the broadcast. That makes sense. But anyway, (laughs) but I was surprised just that you were saying you were nervous to be recorded but then I was like oh is it because the topics of the show is so personal no. and you were like no I'm never nervous to talk about personal things with people but I just have a phobic reaction if it's going to be public like if it's a camera in my face sure recording or if I have to talk in public or even a podcast recording did you know there was a study that showed that people fear public speaking more than they fear death yes I know that oh okay Maybe you told me that. I can validate that. So if you kill someone who has a big speech coming up, you're doing them a favor. No, because <laughs> the speech is temporary and you get over it pretty quick and then you realize how silly it was to be worried about it. But don't you speech. think death is temporary? Yes, I happen you to. You happen to think that. I don't actually think death is temporary. I think oh. life and death are both eternal. Wait, so is it like the, because I was just telling you about that TV on the radio song where they say death's the door, you walk in and out, in and out. Do you think that happens? Like, do you think people in the death sphere come back to life? You mean reincarnation or ghost pet cemetery? What do you mean? Well, I feel like reincarnation implies that you immediately come back to life as something else. I was just saying, what do you mean when you say death? Or do you think death is not temporary? I think that our conscious lives that Mm -hmm. we're aware of, our viewpoint, when our body passes that changes into something else because in this lifetime I don't really remember having another viewpoint I'm just me in this lifetime but I also believe that the me that's me in this lifetime with my consciousness of myself I believe death is uh, life-giving in a way I feel as though it reminds me of the ocean how it goes in and out and there's seaweed in there and there's 
all kinds of strange not life in there. Not for long. That's true. <laughs> well, then the humans will die out in the ocean. What about me back. who's creeped out by being in the ocean and seaweed? First of all, I well, believe in the life. last thing you said that death can be life-giving, but I don't believe any of the other stuff. Maybe I'll get there. I know what you don't believe. I, don't <laughs> I know. That's for the benefit of the audience. You got to come to it on your own. That's sure. all I know. Does that you belief... You read too much Vonnegut when you were a youth. The, and an adult. Does that belief <laughs> ward off depression for you? No, it has oh, nothing okay. to do with depression. Oh, nothing well, in that case, we're wasting the audience's yeah, time. Yeah, I was wondering if depression. change a topic on me. No, no, no. In my opening monologue, I talked basically, just because it's the very first episode, about my childhood traumas and experience with depression. Um, so, yeah, let's well, get Well, you got it. hit on the head by a truck. Right, very concrete went unconscious and remembered slowly going unconscious and after that you had panic attacks about mm-hmm. peop- about yourself dying and you had dreams about right, being but they know the all this because that's the first section this is but about that, you now but that has to do with uh fear more than depression i think I, I, th- think I think i have depression and anxiety yeah you had you had and you had natural fear that would come from an experience like that right and i think a lot of depression has its root at trauma and mine i had a really good childhood and just one specific trauma immediately triggered but it was a brain injury and right brain injury exactly. is notorious physical for triggering depression and also somewhat the genes in our family it runs in our family unfortunately which for... brings us back to you yes. and you keep trying to evade the question but let's talk about you your have, struggles with depression you haven't asked the question yet. that's it that's the one a leading either what's your question? oh yeah it's all open-ended um if you need some more form um, your current, like how depression feels to you is something I want to get into and your story, like what led, what contributing factors do you think led to your depression or do you believe it's just genetic or what? Okay. I, be- I believe that genes contribute to a propensity towards it, mm-hmm. a weakness towards it. And I believe that if you have enough severe traumas over time, it can cause depression but to me there's a the most important distinction is i can tell when it's biochemical and i can tell when it's a reaction to something bad that happens such as a trauma so how can you tell I what's the difference a, in oh, the there's feeling a huge difference. so explain it i know <laughs> okay so i became depressed when i was about 12 mm. and it's part for me it's partly genetic maybe partly hormonal at that time and then a, a lot of it a lot of it was experiential for me but what it did was i had reactions to the experiences but they flipped into the biochemical depression where everything looks completely different mm-hmm. i was unable to t- to have pleasure in all of the things that used to give me pleasure i felt extremely separated from everybody else kind of numb and as though there was a glass wall between me and everybody else this is when i was like 12 13 14 growing up and actually the biochemical aspect of it lasted until i was 35 when i first was offered antidepressant medication and so the way it felt in my 20s i was really really active physically I would walk 10 miles by Lake Michigan. I would walk and swim in the ocean here when I got here. Right, Dave Chappelle has said. Uh, Dave Chappelle has said that ex- like rigorous exercise has banished his depression. That's why he's so built now. Well, they say that in the in you know the scholarly it writings about depression. It. Yeah. It's it's part, but and I love to exercise, but it never lifted the depression. My depression never lifted until I got medication for it. And what it, and. And the way I know that is, I was a really active, happy little girl. I liked to run and climb trees and play with my friends and ride my bike and play baseball. And I would run and hug people when they came to visit. And over the years, it changed because of circumstances and bad learning. But when I did tip over into the depression, it felt very physically heavy. Mm-hmm. I felt just heavy, 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 like I couldn't get anything done. One little tiny task might seem impossible. But how does that feel different than you were saying it feels totally different than when something bad happens and you're sad about it? When something bad happens, 
and there's a grief reaction mm -hmm. and there's pain it feels al alive anyway oh it's a uh, part of me it's like me right. feeling pain and feeling alive but if it triggers a biochemical depression which for me can only be fixed with medic some people can go in and out of it without medication but i never did then it's different it's yeah a sense of eternity but a sense can... of it eternally being that way and never changing and it scopes over to everything so if i lost my cat and i'm crying over my cat i lost my cat but i'm happy to have my friends come and offer me comfort or play mm -hmm. with me or try to cheer me up or whatever but if i lost my cat and i triggered a depression i would just want to lie in bed because i'm so tired and all i want to do is get away from it and you can't get away from it and i would try to move to get away from it and i would move and move and move but it was still there and one can trigger the other you're saying like yeah something bad happening can lead to a de or an actual spell of depression right well, you can be depressed without needing medication. Or without needing a stimulus to trigger the depression, but something sad happening can trigger depression. That's what Right. I'm well, what happens to me now is once they, once they treated it, the thing that I noticed the most was it took my counselor two years to talk me into taking just the most basic garden variety antidepressant medication. Mm -hmm. I knew I was depressed. I knew I couldn't get out of it. I wanted help. It's addictive. Well, you want help, and or at least in my experience, you want help, but you also feel like it's foolish to for people to want you to get help, and that like one right. of the hardest things to dig yourself out of the depression is the feeling that no, I deserve to feel this way. This is the truth. It may be grim and sad, but this is how reality is. I need to just accept it, and, and that stops you from. Right. Yeah. That's the tricky part of the depression that once you sink far enough into it, even if you have medication in your at your bedside and you mm. know that it works, you will think that it won't work and you won't to take the point it. where you won't use it. It, yeah. <laughs> it completely tricks you once you're in it. And people tell you to, you know, just think more positively. Don't be negative if mm -hmm. they if they're unfortunate enough to talk to you when you're in a state like that. But right. Um, it's impossible. It's literally impossible. If it's a chemical depression and you have to have medication to get out of it, you can't think your way out of it. It's completely different than a, a life, a a life situation. You know, the Shaolin monks who can like control their body temperature and heart rate. Maybe they could some control people, their endocrine flow. Some people, right, and that would be <laughs> nice. I, but you need the medication, yeah. I take as little medication as I need to take because I would like my body to learn to do it right. itself, and right. it does. But it took me about 15 years to start taking the medication when I needed it. I just had, people had to tell me. And well, fortunately, I had, to, I had you to tell me, so I didn't have to, it's, I learned that faster. I tend you to You mean when it. you were a little boy or? No, I just mean like growing up with a parent who'd been through it, I, you taught me that one of the main things is to recognize you're depressed and take the medication if you yeah. need it. And also that when you are depressed, you will not recognize it. You mm. will think it's real. You will think everything is that way. I project it onto whatever's in front of me. So like if I'm depressed everything. and Jen is in the room, I think the relationship is ruined. Or if I'm focused on work, I think my career is going nowhere. It's just like whatever you look at is ruins. You can't look at anything or And there's anything. no pleasure yeah. in anything. You could, right. you could really want to feel better and, and go to the beach and it doesn't feel the same. Again, I hate the ocean. There's no so, joy. But I'm with you, I guess. It's yeah, scary. there's no joy. And the other thing, I, I didn't say it, but it, uh, when depression is incredibly painful, it's not just being separated and being numb and being not having pleasure. It's ridiculously painful. Right. On the outside, you seem like a robot, but you certainly don't feel like a robot inside. Or you could seem how different people express it I don't know. But I, of course, ways. I'm going to interview a lot of different people. I'm sure they have different yeah. experiences. But... I have like the outwardly I become numb, but inside there's stuff going on. Like you know, I used to try pain. to <laughs> I used to try to drive away from it, so I would Physically? get in the car and drive and drive and drive and drive, and it was very helpful while I was just blasting Tracy fast, Chapman the whole way. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> and did it work? Or Tori Amos.
But she's got the it you worked, got a fast car song. It worked while I was doing it. And oh, okay. uh, when I would come home, I would sink back into bed again and just feel so heavy. One of the things I, I learned, it's really unfortunate that it took them so long to tell me about antidepressant medication and offer it to me because I was at, I knew it was phys- I'm, you know, the generation that I'm in, they didn't just offer you that information when you went to counseling. And I remember going to a counselor and saying, it just feels really, really heavy and really, really physical. And there's got to be some female hysteria. There's got to be some (laughs) medicine for it. She said, I'm sorry, but I don't think there is. And then when I had the counselor when I was 35, for two years, he tried to talk me into taking it because after assessing me for a long time, he said, I could talk to you till you're 87, but you're always going to be depressed unless you take medication. And I didn't, I had been split from myself for so long while I was depressed, but I remembered the joy of being a little girl. And I, I never wanted to go forward and I never wanted to be present. I had just always wanted to go back to that because I felt as though that was me. That was myself, and I couldn't find it anymore. I have that too, and it's tough when the best part or the part that you romanticize the most about your life is the childhood before your depression, because then uh, I I always, when I'm depressed, start to think, this must be how all adults feel once they transition from childhood to to adulthood, and depression's the natural state of being an adult once you realize how much life is terrible. Right, I think it's a mistake. And you like romanticize. Yes. I just want to be a child again so bad. Yeah, but I it, didn't know how it's bad a mis- It's a mistake. Well, everybody loses their innocence and realizes everything isn't always safe, and everybody doesn't always love you. But there's a lot of adults. But who are there's still happy a lot most of, of the joy. Yeah, that, yeah, there's access to joy in adults, and then as you grow and you're not depressed, you have access to joy and pain, and you process it, and it's life, and it's good and bad, and you know that you go back and forth, and there's beautiful things and sad things. But the reason I didn't take my medication for two years, and the reason I want your listeners to know why I didn't is in case any of them aren't for the same reason. Um, I also think everyone's an individual case. Everybody's an individual case, but I did not want to take medication because I so badly wanted to be myself. And I took that medication, and within six weeks, I was myself. I was the same person I was when I was 11 before I got depressed. Like your reading level regressed and everything? No, no, no. No, no, I know. I'm a a quick learner. No, I, I just felt alive. I felt joyful. I felt as though I could process things. I felt as though I could do things. But mainly, well, I, felt, like if, I felt like I was home. I was sure. home again. I was home with myself again. If you have an iron deficiency and you take an iron supplement, you're not warping yourself. You but know I didn't I mean? see yeah. it that way. And he kept telling me it's like insulin for a diabetic. Sure. But I was in the depression and I did not believe that it would work for me. That's another thing is I thought it'll work for everybody in the world but me. Well, and it is a journey. That's not to say everyone else out there immediately tried the pill that you've tried and it'll work, right? I've had to try a number of medications because your mental biochemistry is so complicated. Well, you want to get a diagnosis of whether it's biochemical or situational anyway and work on both because it's always going to be... Even if it isn't situational, if you have chemical, biochemical depression that's intransigent, it just won't go Mm -hmm. away. It affects your life and you need counseling for how it affects your life. I'd rather be a not depressed person with a very difficult life than a depressed person whose life is great. I agree. Exactly. (laughs) Depression is more painful than difficulty. Um, So speaking of experiential based depression and like the yin and yang of biochemistry and experience are you willing to talk about experiences you've been vague so far but is that does that make what sorts of experience well like i feel that you've had an incredible amount of trauma that's like movie level to the point where i can't wrap my head around how you're so chipper and uh i know i mean you've been diagnosed with fibromyalgia which is uh for so in some cases, and I think in your case, it's pretty clearly like you've experienced so much trauma that your nervous system is just turned up. Right. Um, that's that's what it is. That's right. Yeah. And but it but in your 
case is that in every case i mean is that the definition of That's, i know it's often misdiagnosed to people who have body aches for another reason there if are they a can't lot figure of, it out they'll say it's fibro but you've been diagnosed after a lot of investigation and i think you legitimately have it there's a lot of different uh theories about what fibromyalgia is and uh I believe that in my case, the fibromyalgia is the autonomic nervous system being on high, and it's been on high for so long, and it's trained to be on high. It's hypervigilant, so it's hypervigilant to pain, right. hypervigilant to stress, stress. hypervigilant to hurt feelings. Yeah. So uh, I can talk. I don't mind talking about some of the experiences, but only if they don't affect other people when I talk about them. Sure. Well, whatever you're comfortable with. But before the recording, you're, I don't know. In my monologue, I get into specific detail and I don't. About which? Well, I talked about hitting my head, ripping up all my drawings and uh, a lot of other things. The right. alcoholism. That was a really difficult. Uh, and I'm not just trying to, to dig. You. And if you're uncomfortable, we certainly don't have to go there. But I feel like one of the main purposes of the podcast is to show people the resiliency of people with depression and. Uh, how we all have, almost everyone has something in their life that was crazy traumatic, like off the charts, and they're not alone in that. Well, I had a difficult upbringing. I left and came out, to, I left Illinois and came out to San Diego on mm -hmm. my own in a drive-away car. What age? I was 24. Okay. And four months after I got here, I was raped on the street by two men that were out on parole for armed robbery, although yeah. I did not know that at the time. My brother was getting married that day, and I had, I was really lonely. I felt really left out, which was part of the trauma of my childhood. Was I was basically isolated from the rest of my family by the fact that I had different beliefs than they did. Right. And uh, that was probably the most traumatic thing that ever happened to me in my life. It was more traumatic than the sexual assault. The sexual assault was terrifying because it happened very quickly. Of course. And they clearly meant to hurt me. They clearly were not doing it for sex. It was supposed to be a surprise attack. They had planned it ahead of time. I tried to get up and leave. They held me down, et cetera, et cetera, and they caused injuries. And the thing that I, the thing, overwhelming feeling, I, I floated away immediately. Right. That's what happens when you're traumatized, and that splits you from yourself, too. But you come back when the trauma's over. Trauma victims need to find a safe place, and then they start healing, and I've done that. And healing involves feeling the trauma, I assume. Sometimes I think, in my own personal opinion, is that... Mm -hmm. Uh, it's the person who experienced the trauma makes the decision about how much of the feelings they're going to let let be present in them and or process when, at a time so that they right. control it. It's especially for a sexual assault victim. Part of your empowerment is having power over who gets to ask you because. Right. I don't mind being asked about it and how it felt and all of that and what did I do after and et cetera, et cetera. But well, I just want to say, speaking of this great movement that's happening right now about speaking out and understanding that sexual assault victims often feel that they can't speak out sometimes for decades, you're 24 on your own, just moved to a new town. And you testified against them and got them put in prison, correct? I, like, speak to, I spoke out right away. I went home. Yeah. And told my roommate what happened. God bless you, Mom. He dialed the... Thank you. I'm very, very proud of it. I don't <laughs> mind talking about it at all. He dialed the rape uh, hotline. I'm very proud of you. And too. I talked to the people and they said, if you want to do this, call the police and go to the hospital. So we did that. And there were no, obviously no witnesses. Generally, mm -hmm. there are no witnesses to sexual assault. Right. But the person's accounting is evidence and to assess whether it's credible. They look at injuries and see if it's consistent with the story, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I went to the DA and the police were very solicitous of me. They clearly felt bad about what had happened to me and they wanted to prosecute the guys and they caught them in four days because they were wow. in mug books because they had a record. Sure. They were only 19 and 20 years old. Yeah, God. So, uh, I was, I think for about a year, yeah, the trial was traumatic. And I sure. developed the attitude because 
I think partly because of what happened in my family, I had to choose to trust what I believe about myself mm-hmm. to be true. Um, and I, I became a lawyer later, so I'm very yeah. analytical. I check everything. I'm skeptical about everything. Specifically a child advocacy lawyer. Right. I fought for children and I fought for victims of don- domestic violence, which is also healing and empowering all of you uh, trauma victims out there. Go do something empowering for yourself. but By helping others in the same situation? You well, mean? because you really do have power when you're an attorney. You get to go tell ah. the story. And if this, if you're on the right side of the story, you don't have to be a brilliant attorney. Usually the facts, if they're clearly presented, will win. And we, I presented the facts of the uh, rape case. I remember feeling absolutely no anger towards the two of them who were sitting there. I can't imagine that. And I will tell you the reason why. I did it on purpose because I wanted to have no relationship with them and no emotional connection to them. And I felt no anger towards them. And I, I did not display a lot of emotion in the courtroom because I was already gone. I had floated away. I had not come back yet. <laughs> sure. But I was mad at I was mad that they did that. They had no right to do that. And I wanted to convict them because it was the right thing to do. And the jury came back and convicted them. So... Yeah. That was that was good. And then after that, they dropped me without, you know, I didn't have the DA and the police anymore. Nobody suggested counseling. It was 1979. Mm-hmm. And uh, disco was burning a, up the charts. <laughs> I will honestly tell you something, something weird that sure. you may not understand. It lifted the depression for a little while. The intensity of the trauma, you mean? It was so severe. And I knew that I was right. I knew that I was not wrong. But grief was acceptable at this time. It was so yeah. se- it was so severe that I had feelings, and when I was mm-hmm. deeply depressed for so long, I couldn't feel anything, which is why I right. used to cut my wrist, my arms up with razor blades, which I call it in my book. Cutting before cutting was cool because I never heard of it, and I never it was you know nineteen sixties. But I did it secretly. Eat your heart out, Henry Rollins. I did it secretly because it felt good. I couldn't feel anything. I wanted to feel something. And when I did that, I felt something. So when I got raped, I felt something. And I knew it was serious. And the other thing it did for me was, this is kind of of a weird thing to say too, but I remember the distinct feeling, okay, that's about enough of that. I'm not going to take any shit anymore. I see. And I never and I yeah. ne- and I never took shit again. I can confirm that. And, when, and people, you know, <laughs> people kind of get the vibe from me that not to touch, you know, not to touch me if I don't want to be touched. Don't push you too hard. Don't yeah. ever hit me. You'll be <laughs> yep. de- you know, you'll be really sorry and when you make me when they made me angry as a lawyer, I turned into a much better lawyer and mm-hmm. and it will lift the depression if, you know, temporarily. But I, well, I don't know if that just runs in the family, but my depression has certainly lifted since because um, the last few years of cracked, I was essentially just spinning my wheels. And that had a lot to do with depression and alcoholism, but also with the fact that I felt that cracked had plateaued in a way and they didn't really have a lot for me to do. And I worked from home, so I just had nothing to do. And I didn't realize how much that was contributing to the depression until I started working on this stuff and now it's like it lifted so immediately i don't know if that'll work for everyone but workaholism is a counter to alcoholism for me and and workaholism and is also a gene that we share because i know so that might be a false <laughs> positive just because of our family lineage we're both workaholics no one of and the th- dad is so i've got the double right whammy. dad is definitely yeah one of the things that works for depression that's pretty standard that they put in you know when they say do this for depression exercise is structuring your day Mm -hmm. and if you feel overwhelmed and you can't do one little thing make a list of everything and do the easiest thing and that'll get you going so especially with your job your job you were under the weather with um deadlines and then you would have like way too many hours in a row and then not enough and there was no well, structure yeah. you didn't know what you're going to be doing and Which is partly my own fault but it was also a combination of 
not knowing what the direction of the company was and just not knowing where to put all your attention or effort. And also, ever since I've known you, you've been, you know, when you were 11 years old, you were writing a fantasy novel in the summers, uh, and you were always mad at yourself because you hadn't finished your book yet when you were hey. 11, 12, 13, 14. And I and still haven't drew. finished that book, so I'm worthless. And it's, and it's fine because you've <laughs> been doing what you would sit in the pool with your little brother and spin adventure stories and fantasy stories and he'd hang on your every word and all the kids came over and you were always the dungeon master or whatever it was making up all the stories fitting for when this you episode were, you don't even know this when, is a dungeons and dragons themed episode <laughs> we keep changing the theme. yep dungeons and dragons is so depressing uh-huh. and when you were uh two years old you would watch half hour cartoons and then repeat them Yep. And when you, when I bet you, that was fucking annoying. <laughs> oh no, it was hilarious. Oh, okay. Packety packety wood. Wait, what's that? Woody Woodpecker. Packety oh, packety. So I wouldn't wood. repeat them verbatim perfectly. That was when I'd you were a little a little older maybe. But and then when you went to uh high school and decided you wanted to do drama, mm-hmm. you were just so thriving oh. and happy. And you love it, like you're multi-talented and you use all your talents at the same time, the art, the writing, the right, comedy, all right, all right, all right. et cetera, et But cetera. do you remember when you took me, how old was I, I when can't you took s- me into law school and I answered a question in front of the class? Yeah, no. that was pretty great. You had that head injury and you were unable to go to school. Yeah. Uh, so for, I came with you to law for school. quite a bit. You were really, really tired and really, really scared. Vertigo. And you wanted to be near me, so we would take you to law school and sleep you under the desk and one time I was in property class and this friend of mine who was uh, one of the few law students I ever met with a sense of humor thought that it would be really cute if if the nine-year-old kid in the front row would answer one of the most complicated property questions there because were I'd memorized it verbatim and, yeah. <laughs> and scare all the scare all the rest of the students and it was Really funny because you could memorize anything and you did a perfect job. The teacher called on you. You answered the question and there was a dead <laughs> silence in the room because like, well, none. Actually, I think it has to go up to the superior court because of this ruling. Oh, it was worse than that. Worse I, don't than that. Okay. I don't even remember as property terms. <laughs> but but it was so funny because everybody should have laughed, right? But everyone was like, Fuck, but it scared everybody. I like, thought. oh no, I'm gonna fail. This nine-year-old knows the answer to the <laughs> they question. They thought I that don't. there was legitimately like. A Doogie Hauser lawyer who like who the fuck is this kid? Right, oh, right. He's, he's gonna throw off the curve. Right. <laughs> and then people started picking on you in seventh grade because mm-hmm. after the brain injury, you that was fun. You basically just moved slower. I mean, sure. you didn't feel well. Yeah. And so uh, that, but that to me that does enough to do with depression. What about how do you feel about it? That's more like. They're picking on me, and that's a nasty thing to do, and I feel bad about it. Well, that was just that one year at Stanley Middle School. It was just a terrible school. It was like the epitome of everything about like a shitty public school because I was in sixth grade in Montessori school, which is awesome, and we went for one year to public school in Stanley Middle School, University City, right? San Diego County. And after the year was so bad, you moved us right out to Ramona where they had a much better school district and everything was delightful. But in that one year, I witnessed a kid stab another kid. Um, A kid choked me out for five cents to put in the copy machine. Kids routinely spit on me and my backpack and my stuff. They had like a spit club where they would all spit on me because I was chubby. And I uh, wore a sweater to school that said so many books, so little time. Maybe I had it coming. You um, didn't have it coming. The English teacher berated you for reading in English class. In English class when they were teaching. She said, no wonder you don't have any friends. And I was like, but I've already read the book you're teaching several times. And I have more friends than you do bitch well i I didn't say that but online now i do that's see that's the pimple (laughs) when you're coming out oh yeah the best time was uh, in retrospect when this kid uh well later in high school that kid did email me calling himself the angel of death and saying he killed me that was a different that was an anomaly but in the one year and in like my hell year seventh grade um 
this kid cornered me and at the time it's the most terrifying thing that ever happened to me but in retrospect i just think it's so dumb and silly and he had bullets not a gun right. but bullets shell casings and he was like i'm bringing the gun tomorrow and i was right. like if you had the balls you would have brought it today like that's nothing you found some shell casings and you want to scare me and but i was very very you. scared at and the these time. people didn't even know no you. no he picked me a random to because i looked targeted. threatenable yeah. a, a few you told me that yeah 10% i'm a nerd mom you don't have to keep telling everyone i was no nerd. <laughs> people get targeted for various reasons you were one of the people that got targeted i remember i got they bullied. called you they, it, don't we, tell them what they called me when we moved to ramona uh-huh. they called you college boy uh-huh. as a compliment as a term of endearment because my we took all took the reading test and i got the highest reading level because you use your big <laughs> you use big words all the time Right. And then in seventh grade, they called me college boy, meaning I'm about to punch you in the head. <laughs> but I didn't see you as being depressed. I, I saw some panic attacks, you know, after they treated you medically for uh-huh. the brain injury. Mood disorder created by brain injury was the diagnosis. Yeah. Oh, and shout out to Ariel, my great friend in seventh yes. grade, who constantly beat up the bullies who hassled me. Ariel Tucker. Yes. Plays a mean little trombone. tiny, little <laughs> tiny thing. And just went right up to the bullies and told them, leave them alone or I'll kick your ass. And they yeah. left them alone. As seventh grade bullies, you, seventh grade bullies are like hyenas. They don't really want to fight. They'll but just that, wander off. I believe this was slightly before Columbine happened. And I went down to the administrators and told them about the shell ca- casings yeah. and the threat. And and I don't they, even remember if their bullets are empty shell casings because I wouldn't have known at the time the difference. They said... That does not fall under our no tolerance policy because those are not actual weapons. Wow, different times. Different, different times. times. <laughs> when Columbine happened, I just pulled you guys out. Really? That was Did it. We, were we were out of school? It was oh, towards, of that school. Right, right, right. I, I mean, I think that I might have all of the dates and events wrong, but I remember sure. pulling you out early because... I think it was Columbine happened like a week before and the end of school. And I was complaining continuously, but also that that was the same school where every Thursday there was a van parked outside with giant printed pictures of chopped up fetuses all over it from like a militant anti-abortion group trying to target junior high kids. Like we have no opinion. I mean, sadly, I guess some of us did, but I had no opinion on like pregnancy and abortion and there like was a billboard of chopped up fetuses every Thursday when we were walking to the buses. And you said that so every weird. morning when you went in the restroom there was porno taped up all over and then the janitor took it down in the afternoon and then it was up again in the morning. Yep. And I ended up finding <laughs> out what kid was single-handedly responsible for that. Are you going to say his name? Randy, my friend Randy. I won't say his oh, last name. Okay. You know, I'm same kid who ate uh, snails. He used Hi, to, Randy. We'd be playing in the driveway, and he'd pick up a snail and suck the snail out of the shell and eat it. Ew. Gross. Yeah, he's a weird guy. I'm a weird guy, though. We're all weird guys. <laughs> we were saying before, and we didn't finish it, but yes, you have to be diagnosed and sent to a psychiatrist who is a medical doctor who specializes in the treatment of, of medicine with brains, mental you know, mental illnesses that can be it's treated. It's called brain medicine. You can just Google that. And uh, they will. You could you come in with classic signs of depression, and there are also different kinds of depression. And they have to experiment, and you have to be patient with it because it takes a while for the medicine to work. You may have side effects. Speak up if you have side effects. You're not supposed to have bad side effects. And if it doesn't work, they try something else, and they do that until they find what works for you. And I have encountered people who've tried everything, and it nothing works for them, and they have to adapt to it and think of life skills to live with it and still get and, some pleasure out of their life. And right, it's just really ride, out, de- ride out the depression and really enjoy the moments when you right. happen to not be depressed. If um, that happens, yeah. There's an incredible story. I forget, a, it was some documentary about... A guy who phys- physiologically can't be happy or it he has a mix up in his brain where when he feels elation, he gets paralyzed from the neck down. Whoa. So he literally lives in a house next to his family's house because like the sight of his wife or children who he loves will make him paralyzed. So like he can live on his own. But when they come to visit, he gets paralyzed immediately. He has to stay depressed if he wants to stay like ambulatory. It really tough road to hoe. so what does he choose depression uh from what i recall yeah he chooses he says it's not hard to be depressed about the challenge 
and he will often he just tries to keep a flat affect yeah he tries not to get too excited like how super taster will start eating bland foods exclusively and but it does sound the, like what a great sacrifice and to there not are be happy and there are things that are meaningful and important that are core in life that are not necessarily happy i agree including your connection with your wife and kids next door right and just knowing that it's there and you're there for them right so yeah all of that and the stuff. light on the trees and whatnot the light on the trees yeah and the sparkles on the water exactly man and you keep taking me back to the beach and i don't want to go there i know that makes me really depressed i want to go to the mountain <laughs> You like mountains too, though, right? I love mountains okay, and good. I love All rivers, right. birds, cats, dogs. All right. Well, this is devolving into just a list of things we like, which is useful if you're depressed. Um, but I think I'm going to wrap it up. I love you, Mom. I love you, Mikey. <laughs> Do you have any last parting advice last that you felt words? like you didn't get to say? <laughs> or did we end at a good point? I think that it's important for peers... It's very hard to be around a person who's chronically depressed because there's really yep, not a lot. Shout out to my girlfriend who's put up with a lot of bullshit. There's a, not a lot you can do and it's tough and it brings you down. But it's really important to understand, to try to get the person to see that it could be better and to get some help. And I mean like medical help and counseling help, even if the medical help isn't isn't what's warranted, the counseling will be because... But you have to understand that they are not in control of it. They they can't be happy for you, and it's not their fault. And I am never ashamed ever of telling people that I was sexually assaulted. I'm never ashamed of telling people I, I struggle with depression, and I treat it, and it's just a fact of my life. And I don't think other people should be ashamed either. I have a lot of respect for you in high school talking about your depression and People would come up to you and say, nobody ever talked about it openly. You got me to see that other people have this too, and thank you so much. So. Yeah, I'm great. That's the big takeaway. I appreciate you doing this <laughs> podcast for people. I appreciate you, Mom. Thank you so much. A deep thanks to my mother for her wisdom, bravery, love, and of course my very existence and all ensuing content and associated intellectual property rights. Tales from the Pit will be back in two weeks with a very special holiday episode featuring the incomparable Katie Stoll, and I hope you'll join us. Stay strong until then. You are loved. You were sick, but you're better now, and there's work to do. This has been a Small Beans Endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The Beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the Small Beans grow into huge, giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you. <laughs>